For God and Heavenly Father, we do come to you. We want very much to look at your word and see Jesus very clearly. We ask this morning you would send forth your spirit and that he would be our great teacher. We long to serve Christ, to honor him with our lives. And we recognize that unless we have a clear vision of him and of his glory, then we will fail to live for him and serve him all of our days. So be with us this morning as we look at your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated. Our scripture passage this morning is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13, and you'll find that on page 844 of the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. Mark writes for us, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. A number of years ago, I was reading a Bible story to one of my daughters. And she stopped me in the middle of the story and said, Daddy, Daddy, is Jesus real? I mean, is he a real person or is he just somebody that, that people make up? Is he really real? I said, yes, dear, he is real. In fact, he is the most real that there is. For there is nothing apart from Jesus because he's the one who has made everything I think sometimes if we are honest with ourselves, we at various points in life, maybe even for a split second, wonder about that question. Is Jesus real? Is it all real? Am I making this up? Have I been duped into believing something that isn't true? Even if it's just a flash in your brain for just a moment, at times we wonder. And especially for the disciples who have just heard from Jesus these very jarring words. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Following Jesus at all costs. Self-denial, even giving up your life for Jesus. 
And so what Jesus does in a very gracious way is to reveal at least to the inner three, Peter, James, and John, the glory of His nature. So that when those times come, and they begin to wonder, is it all real? Or was it just make-believe? They will be able to press through with a sense of great assurance that Jesus is God. That He is glorious. And that He has a kingdom of glory in which they will share and enjoy forever and ever. Jesus told them in verse 1 of chapter 9, as we saw last week, Truly I say to you, there, is, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And Mark gives us a clue to the meaning of that statement in the very next verse by saying, and after six days, a very precise measurement of time. Why? As if to say there's going to be a glimpse of the power of the kingdom right now. And that's exactly what happens on this mountain. Jesus is transfigured before them so that they begin to see the glory of the kingdom. It's a hint of the glory and the power of God that would raise Jesus from the dead, that would pour out His Spirit upon His people at Pentecost, and that one day would bring His people into glory when Christ comes back in the glory of His Father, as Jesus has already said to us back in chapter 8. And so here's a foretaste of the glory that's to come. And Jesus, having said this very difficult statement to His disciples takes them up to most likely Mount Hermon. It's a glorious picture. They're up on this snow-topped peak, 9,000-foot mountain. And there at night, when all is quiet and still, the disciples fall asleep, and they are startled and awakened, and they see this bright light. Their eyes are not adjusted yet. This intense Bright white that is Jesus Himself as if the veil of His humanity is pulled back even for a moment. And they begin to behold His glory. The glory that He had with His Father in heaven. Recalls Moses upon Mount Sinai when he saw the Lord face to face and he came down from the mountain and His face shone so brilliantly that people could not look upon Him. And He had to put a veil over His face. And here we see Jesus now up on the mountain, not reflecting the glory of God, but being the glory of God. And the disciples are overwhelmed because now the one who made all things and by whom all things are held together is now standing before them in his radiance. He is reality because there is no reality apart from Jesus there is no creation apart from Jesus we do not have lives we do not have breath apart from Jesus so is Jesus real oh yes and he shows a glimpse of the true nature of his glory to the disciples so that his glory towers over all their expectations of who he really is and came to do and so we see Jesus in his glory but but why? There are a couple of things that come out of this. The first is this. God wants to expose our false expectations 
about Jesus' kingdom. When the disciples are awakened, they, they don't just see Jesus, they also see Moses and Elijah. In other words, they see witnesses from the Old Testament that summarize, you might say, or encapsulate all that has happened before in history. All that God has done in redeeming His people. And now they bear witness to Jesus. Just as Jesus would tell His disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. All the law and the prophets are about Me. And here He has two great witnesses of the Old Testament that are pointing to the glory of Jesus. And what's Peter's response? Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. He did not know what to say. Now that's true of Peter most often in the Gospels. We saw it just in the last chapter where Peter has confessed Jesus as the Christ. Jesus begins to speak of his crucifixion. What does Peter do? He begins to rebuke Jesus. And once again, he's sticking his foot in his mouth. He doesn't know what to say because he's afraid. But what is Peter trying to accomplish by saying, let's make several tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah? Peter wants to stay. He wants to keep this. Wow, this is glorious. This is beautiful. As the old saying, slogan goes, it just doesn't get any better than this. Jesus, you stay here with Moses and Elijah and we'll go down and get some marshmallows and come back up. We'll have a glorious time together. Because you see, he's thinking that now the kingdom has come with power in its fullness. And so let's lay hold of it and not let it go. He wants to capture a sense of the joy and anticipation of the kingdom. And they've misunderstood Jesus Jesus instructs them, therefore, not to tell anyone. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them not to tell, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They don't understand, and therefore Jesus says, now you don't tell anyone. Because if you tell anyone, you'll confuse them just like you are confused. What was Peter wanting Peter was wanting the glory of the kingdom right there without going to the cross. That's why he rebuked Jesus in the first place. Now here they're confused about the resurrection. In verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead meant. From their perspective, the resurrection was to take place at the end of the ages when the final judgment of God would come. And they're confused about the timing of how this would play out. Because after all, Elijah is supposed to come before the resurrection. And if the resurrection is about to take place, does that mean Elijah is about to come? So they ask the question, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Jesus responded saying, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. He's speaking of John the Baptist who was beheaded. Elijah has come 
And what you misunderstood about his ministry, you've already misunderstood about my ministry. Yes, it's a ministry of restoration, but it's a ministry of suffering too. And here Peter is on the mountain saying, let's build some tents. Let's stay a while. Let's don't go down there. We don't want to risk getting into the enemies. We don't want to have to go to the cross. Jesus, maybe I won't have to deny myself. Maybe I won't have to take up my cross and follow you. If we can just stay here a while. Peter wants a crossless redemption. He wants all the benefits without any of the costs. Just like we often do, we want financial success. We want our marriages to go well and not have any stress within them. We want numerical success in the church. We want vocational success. The reality is so oftentimes we are frustrated in life because we have given ourselves to faulty expectations of the kingdom of God. That glory will reign now. That what is meant for the future, when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, well, we should expect that in these days. So that my experience in this life will be what I think it will be in the life to come. We're always looking, therefore, for the next best thing. The next best relationship to come along, whether it be a friendship or a dating relationship or even a marriage. The next best book that will tell me just the right things to do. The next best vacation, the next best client, the next best computer that's going to satisfy me, the next act of love that I'll receive. And because we have expectations of all of those things, so oftentimes we're frustrated in life because we don't have a healthy sense that we have to go down from the mountain to reality. You may have seen the movie As Good As It Gets. Jack Nicholson's character is one who suffers from obsessive compulsive disorder. And he goes to his psychiatrist one day and he's there for a therapy session and he comes out, he's frustrated, things just aren't getting any better. And he throws open the door into the waiting room where all these other people are waiting to see the psychiatrist, hoping that there's going to be some help for them. And what does he say? What if this is as good as it gets? And of course, the look on everyone's face in the waiting room is this one of startledness. Oh my goodness, what if he's right? What if this is as good as it gets? It's never going to get any better. And you see, when you have a faulty expectation about God, and then all of a sudden you get disillusioned because you go to reality in this life, life in a fallen world, then you're frustrated. Because you like Peter and me like Peter, we want glory now. Peter would be tempted to see the crucifixion as the end of a dream. But it's only the beginning of a dream. And so God here is exposing our false expectations. But the other thing is this. He's also exalting his son in our eyes. Just as Moses and Elijah were 
vindicated by God on the mountain. In a sense, God is vindicating His Son in the eyes of the disciples who have already rebuked Him. Look at the parallels here between Moses on the mountain and Jesus on the mountain. After six days, which was a time period in the Old Testament of preparation for revelation, there's the mountain, there's this cloud that envelops them. God is speaking. It's all meant to signify the presence of the Lord Almighty. He is there with them and He's going to give the definitive word for them. The definitive word is this. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Heavenly Father is vindicating His Son in the eyes of the disciples so that they listen to Him and follow Him even if it means going to the cross themselves. But you notice this authority of Jesus, all the authority under heaven and earth that the Father gives to Him is not one that He takes for Himself, but He waits patiently for the Father to give it to Him. The amazing thing here is not the glory of Jesus shining through the veil of His humanity. The amazing thing here is that Jesus has veiled His glory so that He can come among His people and bring salvation to them. And here it's the Father's delight to exalt His Son, to hold Him up and say, this is My beloved Son. Now you listen to Him. He wants to make the Son larger in our eyes so that we want to fall before Him and worship Him. One of my favorite classes in college, and maybe says, this says something about my academic career, I'm not sure, but one of my favorite classes in college was scuba diving. And there are a few reasons for that, but following our class in scuba diving, several friends and I went down to Key West for a scuba diving trip one spring break. We had a contact down there who was a dive master, and he would take us out on the boats day after day. And I remember one day, it was a choppy day, there was lots of wind, the boat was rising up and down, the sea was churned up, there was a lot of silt in the water, and you could only see about 15 feet in front of you. And I was the first one to go down. And I was following the anchor line down towards the ship, and I wasn't sure what to expect. And as I held my hand on this rope and slowly went down, I could hardly see in front of me. And all of a sudden, very quickly, there was this outline of this great ship in front of me, and it scared the heck out of me. I was startled. It was so large. And in a sense, that's what's taking place here. Jesus all of a sudden looked so large to the disciples. And they're terrified. And the Father is exalting the Son before His people so that His people would bow down before Him. Jesus needs to grow in our eyes larger and larger. It's the very thing that He prayed for in John 17. Father, I've glorified You on earth having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's the delight of the Son to be glorified by the Father in the presence of His people. Why? 
so that you and I would bow before Him and worship Him because that is the only safe place to be. That is the only place where we receive grace and mercy and salvation. And so Jesus needs to grow larger and larger in our eyes. If He does not, then what happens is when we exalt everything else in comparison to Jesus, we begin to lose assurance in life. Assurance that He is actually worth denying ourselves for and taking up our cross. When everything else begins to grow up and look bigger and bigger. So that we can hardly push the things away and actually see Jesus in His glory. Lives are so filled with things. All of our dreams and our desires to have the high score in our video game or our love for certain kinds of cars or our desire to be loved in certain ways or the kind of clothes that we wear. Everything begins to grow up among us so that we can't actually see Jesus. And it takes Him breaking through and revealing His glory so that we're bowed down before Him and worship Him. Otherwise, it's sort of like going into a jewelry store and you're wanting to buy just the right beautiful diamond for your fiancé. And you walk into the store and there's all the diamonds and the jewels and the gold and the silver and all the lights are shining down upon them and you walk into the store and you say, wow, look at that carpet. Isn't that amazing carpet? And you get down and you, you touch the carpet and it feels so soft and you're amazed by it and you rub your face on it. And people in the store are looking at you like you're mad. What's wrong with this man? He's rubbing his face on the carpet. It's just brown carpet. And in a way, when God looks down from heaven at us, it's as though we're like that with our, our face to all the things of this life. And we're saying, isn't this amazing? And He's saying, look at my Son. Now that's amazing. Listen to Him. Glorify Him. Worship Him. Now, I don't want to say that the things in this life aren't good. God made the world good. But the heavens declare what? The glory of God. They ought to make us look up and worship the Son. Unfortunately, Peter and James and John don't quite get it yet. And they're more interested in building a tent so they can stay right there. The Apostle John would eventually see Jesus in His glory one more time in his earthly life. When Christ would reveal Himself to him in the book of Revelation, and you have this great picture there, even in the very first chapter, of Jesus wearing a golden sash and hair that is bright and brilliant white, and He's carrying a sword that's sharpened on both sides. And it's the glory of Jesus that bows down John before Him to worship. And now John realizes that 
the greatest thing that we need is for Jesus to grow bigger in our eyes. Sometimes we're people who just say, if I could just see Jesus like Peter and James and John did, if I could just see His glory, well, then I'll know that He's real. Then I'll worship Him. Then I'll deny myself for Him and take up His cross and follow Him. I don't think that's true. Because Peter and James and John didn't. But you, what you and I need is to see Jesus in His Word. In fact, Peter tells us that the one event in the life of Peter and, and the ministry of Jesus that Peter refers to is this event. Second Peter chapter 1. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You see, you could see the events, but you wouldn't understand them and you wouldn't know what they mean. Peter's saying now we have something more sure. It's actually the Word of God itself. And we're to look at that to see the glory of Christ so that we would respond to the Heavenly Father and worship His Son and listen to Him. Is Jesus real? Yes, He's real. He's the most real. And He's the most glorious. And He says, now you come to Me and worship Me. And when you do, you will understand what it means to follow Me. And you will have the strength and the grace to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do confess that our understanding of the glory of Your Son pales in comparison to the true glory that He possesses with You. We ask this morning that You would raise our eyes heavenward, that we would look upon Jesus and love Him and delight in Him and listen to Your declaration of Him that He is Your Son, that we are to listen to Him and we are to follow Him in every way. For Christ's sake and glory we pray. Amen.